a special edition of Random Encounter, the RPG Fan Podcast. This is your co-host, John McCarroll. Unfortunately, Rob is not here today, but I do have very two very special guests. I have uh, Richard Rodriguez, who is the QA lead at Atlas on Gungnir. Hi there. And I have uh, a man that you met a couple of months ago, Aram Jabari, who is the PR manager at Atlas. Hello. And uh, as, as you may have guessed, seeing that uh, Richard is the QA lead on Gungnir, we're going to talk about Gungnir, which... Uh, New title from Atlas and Sting, Sting being the developers of Knights in the Nightmare, Yggdra Union, uh, Hexus Force, and all these other very complicated RPGs that many of you know and love. Um, so, Richard or Aram, whichever one of you wants to start, can you give us a brief kind of overview of, uh, if you want to, even Department Heaven as a whole, and then uh, how Gungnir fits in? Uh, well, in terms of the Department Heaven series, like if you're familiar with it, like a lot of the games, they don't really kind of continue from one to the other. There's no like real connections between them, aside from maybe like a character here and there and like the mythology there. So it really just kind of sits in its own little area within the series overall. I mean, the biggest connection to other games would be seeing some characters like Tamra the Witch is there, and like the like Norse mythology is like definitely heavily in this game, like with some of the other ones as well. As for this game itself, uh, it's mainly just about, like, this kind of conflict going on in this nation where there's, like, this race of people called the Leonikins that are being oppressed by the noble race of the Daltons. And the whole story is basically like, you just kind of getting your ragtag group, and, like, creating resistance, like, making your way across the nation to kind of oust this, like, oppressive government that's going on. For, for anyone who's unfamiliar with Sting's games, uh, there was a really cool write-up I just saw by Cat Bailey on, on Joystick. I hope it's okay with for you, uh, <laughs> yeah, John, for me to... Uh, yeah, but, but she, she went into detail about the Death Heaven series and, and just Sting's philosophy in general. And for anyone who's unfamiliar, basically, um, I think the first one that came out of North America would have been Riviera, Riviera. The Promised Land, which was, uh, for the most part, I guess you could say it was more of a straightforward RPG than... Um, Igor Union and Knights and the Nightmare, in that it was um, it was not you know a strategy RPG. It was, but it was unique in that it kind of depended heavily on the items. The items were very core, an item management, weapon management, durability. And then for the next game, Igor Union, it was this very interesting mix of like real time and turn based yeah, strategy RPG elements. Knights in the Nightmare was this <laughs> amazingly weird mix of strategy RPG and bullet hell action. Um, so one of the things that the constant for Sting is that there seems to be no consistency or constancy between genre um, for gain a game within the same universe. And it's it's very bold game making. It's very sometimes I think maybe the, from one game to the other in the same series, they maybe lose a, a fan um, just because like they go from a traditional RPG to something that's totally crazy. But I think anyone who gives the games time and dives into them finds some of the most nuanced, layered, intricate, complex, and rewarding games. Even Hexies Force, which was probably the most straightforward RPG of their entire uh, universe. That was actually not... That was not Death Heaven. That's no. right. Yeah, that's right. So, with Gungnir, on a scale from Hexies Force to Knights in the Nightmare, where where is it on the crazy scale? <laughs> uh, I actually put it like in the lower half of the scale. Sure. Like It's pretty straightforward SRPG. There's just like a lot of little nuances here and there. It's definitely not like Knights, where it's like own genre entirely or even Yigra. I'd say it's basically around like where Riviera is, like in terms of how far off it is from the natural RPG. Much RPG in this case. Much closer to Luminous Arc, Final Fantasy Tactics, and, and the kind of the tried and true Disgaea 
the pillars of the genre as opposed to something more experimental, I think, like Nights and Lemmings. Well, it's interesting that you draw a comparison to Skaya. I've only had a chance to play a few hours of the game, but it seems very interesting that that things in in uh, Gungnir are very focused about time, whereas Disgaea, you had you know you could move your characters around almost indefinitely. It seems like like Gungnir is very controlled. You get one turn every now and again. You can move one character, but then you can interrupt. You can speed things up. You can move your turns around. And kind of, can you go into detail about this time system for our for our listeners? I just find it very intriguing. Oh, yeah, well, it's kind of like how you said, where like it, they put a lot of control or restrictions on like what you can do, but at the same time, it's very open because on the one hand, yeah, you can only control one character when it's your party's turn to act. However, you can control like any character you want. You know, you can keep controlling the same guy over and over during your turn, and only switch over to those support characters like when it's useful. And that structure plays into the context of the story, right? I mean, there's, there's, like you said, these ragtag, this ragtag group comes together. They don't have an indefinite amount of time. To oh, yeah, that. you can look at it like that. It's just in terms of, like, their kind of low-level approach to it. You know, more kind of makes it... Gorilla. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Now... So, um, oh, go ahead. Oh, no, no, go ahead. I, I was going to ask a follow-up question, but if you have more to say, I will let you finish. Oh, no, I was going to kind of clarify, but no, go ahead. No, so uh, in, in regards to being able to control one character over and over again... One thing that I've seen happen in, in many a strategy RPGs, specifically Fire Emblem, is you really focus on one character and then mm-hmm. you kind of get screwed over. I mean, do you think that that I don't know? I, I what what are your thoughts on that? I haven't gotten to the point where I can only use one character. I have to heal. I have other support stuff. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I th- I think honestly, you have to move around with with the beat system. So I I, oh, I just answered my own question. So why don't you talk about the beat system? Oh, well, first, let me just go for Like, I mean, when I was saying, like, controlling more than more, like, using the same character more than once, like, I guess I was kind of exaggerating where you're not going to always use the same character over and over, but, like, when that time comes where you really want to use them, like, twice in a row, you know, you have that option. And even in terms of using the same character, like, they have their own wait time meter, which will increase. And if you want to keep using them, like, they'll start, uh, their max HP will actually start dropping. So there are definitely, like, things in place that kind of force you to move around and use the other characters as well. But uh, like you said, the beat system, yeah, it's definitely one of the better like systems within the game where like, you use all your party members attack up like anywhere from two to three or four characters all, to, all at once. And it's really where a lot of the strategy in the game is in terms of like, you know, controlling the battlefield, like placing your units in the units in the right spots before you wait to like take the time to attack. It can be the difference between like a hundred damage attack versus a five hundred damage one. And the risk reward is like a very long running theme in Sting games. Um, I mean, I remember Hexes had a system that was based almost entirely on risk reward and how you would allocate um, your like your points and for your special abilities mm-hmm. in battle. No, yeah, that's a very good point. Like, I know a lot of times, like, I wouldn't use the beat system just as like, oh no, I just I gotta attack this guy like right now when I have a chance. But it's like if you use that fourth on, like, no, if I move him here, wait to attack, get my other guy here. Those two attacks will end up being more than what two separate attacks would have been on its own. Uh, it, it it seems like it works almost like the the link system from Front Mission Five, which is a game that I'm still incredibly bitter about its lack of localization. But yeah, it it seems like you almost it if you're more patient and patient and patient right up until the point where you can't be patient anymore, it pays off the most. Which I you know, as opposed to you know I playing tactics ogre you know last month where i just okay let's go grinding 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 grind and then i really don't have to use any strategy whatsoever and 
you know, I, I'm digging on the game so far. Um, also, it, w- one one system that I'm kind of unclear on is the uh, the you you have all your story characters, and then you have characters that you can recruit. They just say, oh, they show up in camp. Would you like to hire these people? Uh, can you go into a little bit of detail about the mercenary system where you can hire people? I I haven't really gotten in depth with that, and I, I'm not sure I understand it. Oh, basically, well, like you mentioned, there's the camp, and then there's also the guild. And the difference between the two is the camp. You only occasionally have like a camp area in between uh, in between battles where you'll get new recruits that will like automatically volunteer. But for the most part, you're going to get all your recruits from the guild. And the way the guild works is that you can offer up an amount of money, just like anywhere from like one to a hundred thousand gold. And basically, like how much you offer, and like depending on what time of story it is, that'll determine like what mercenaries you'll attract. So essentially, like you know, like I got fifty grand, who's going to like work for me for that much money? And then from there, you'll get a set of three guys that you can check their stats and see which one works the best. You know, if you're looking for a particular type of unit, like let's say the uh, wizards, you know, which only use like a certain weapon, then you would offer like that certain weapon along with your money. And that way you're guaranteed to only get uh, mercenaries that only use that type of weapon. And even then you, you'll always, always have a choice of three. And of course, one of the drawbacks of the system is you can't just keep on offering money and think, oh no, I don't like those guys, take it back, offer some more money. Because if you just reject all the recruits, they take like 10% transaction fee no matter what, and you end up losing that goal. Okay. That's interesting. Like, I, I don't know. It, it seems that, that the systems really mesh well in this game. I mean, it's even sometimes on accident, I'll have my character set up where, you know, it's it's beat and boost. And uh, one thing I, I'm myself, I, I'm really bad at reading tutorials. So this is why I'm asking a lot of questions. So it's like, oh, this is a tutorial, hit buttons. And it's really not something that you can do in a Sting game. But can, yeah. you, can you talk to me about like finding the bases on the map? I know that that, that contributes oh, yeah. to the amount of tactics that you have, but I'm not sure 100% how. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, that's true. Well, basically, every base you get will, or, sorry, every base you get will increase your maximum amount of tactic points by two. So you start off, you can only get a max of 10, but by if you take over the whole map, you'd get as much as 20. And the reason you want to increase tactic points, or how you increase the actual tactic points themselves, is basically just by moving along the map. So if you're like just sitting in the same spot attacking an enemy and like not actually moving around or just trying to like exploit the same area, you're not going to get a lot of tactic points. But for every step to a new square that you guys take, that'll increase it. In terms of actually using the points, there's well first there's the obvious stuff like the beat tactics, which it requires a certain amount. You know, boost tactics that require a certain amount. Same thing with like scramble as well. But then there's also like more minor stuff, such as there's weapons that have they have a base damage value and then they have a base like tactical damage value. And weapons that have a tactical damage value will increase their damage will increase with your tactics. And it gets to the point where like a character's attack might do as much as like triple damage if you have a lot of tactic points. So that's something that's definitely like worth you know keeping an eye on and going for over the course of the battle. Okay. So oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Uh, well, John, I wanted to say you uh, you kind of you talked I mentioned a couple times about how there's a lot of balance to how all these different tactical elements that are in the game, and I, I wanted to reiterate for anyone who has never really played a Sting game, there is this consistent thread of um, the more you invest in a Sting game, whether it's an RPG or a strategy RPG or one of the kind of bizarre amalgams that just works of both, 
you the more you invest, the more you get out of it. It's a very um, the games are rewarding the deeper you go. And some people, I think, are overwhelmed by the number of menus and, and so much text, so many statistics. But the the thing that I think the, the takeaway is for anyone who's just looking for a like a strategy RPG, they'll find a lot to like with Gungnir. It has a lot of the same. You, you have to command, you have to manage where your your units are on the battlefield, and you have to basically be smart about your tactics for the most part. But there is a lot of these systems and, and um, elements that you can dive into. And I'm not saying they're all fully elective and optional. I, I think the game is rather hard if you don't know how to properly use things like the beat system. Yeah. But, but it, the, if you really want to dive into it just to the bottom of the pool, you'll find the game is willing to reward you for every step down you go. So um, for anyone who's kind of never played a Sting game and wondering, it, it, Gungnir, like all the other games in, the, in, in their lineup um, or their library, is um, willing to meet you every step of the way. And I found Gungnir to be a little bit more friendly than both Knights of the Nightmare and uh, and Igra Union, which which is a positive for me. I mean, they they don't lack the depth that the other games have, but they're they're certainly more friendly to to newcomers or people who don't, or at least thus far, who don't want to dive, you know, and and min max after every battle, which is certainly a positive. There's definitely a lot more like familiar like game mechanics. Yeah, versus yeah. other ones you mentioned. So, uh, Gungnir is a PSP title, and I wanted to hear, uh, since, since Atlas does a lot of localization of Japanese titles, what do you guys think about the current market? You know, it seems like every other news story that we're publishing from Japan is a new game on the PSP, but the platform's all but dead here in North America. How do you think that those, the, mm. I, what, what are your thoughts on kind of the PSP market as it stands right now? Well, the... The, you're, I think you're right to identify it as um, more vibrant or more healthy in Japan. I think that there's just from an objective standpoint, when you look at this, the numbers, um, and Monster Hunter, I think, was this tremendous beast in Japan in terms of moving PSP systems. Um, we, we don't necessarily, we don't view the PSP as, um, as, we look at it as a very viable platform for our fans. We've had a lot of great titles under our brand come out on PSP. We know a lot of our fans have a PSP or maybe they've, they've upgraded and they have the, the PlayStation Vita, but with the Vita, they still have the ability to, to purchase Gungnir or, you know, the game that comes out the month after that, Crowlands or Wayfarer of Time, which are, they're both really in the same genre, the same target player. And so I think the reality of the Japanese game market is that, um, as there, there is, um, Handhelds are huge in Japan. I think from a development standpoint, there's there's some element where it's it's you can be a little faster and a little lighter on your feet when you're developing for handheld. But also, I think handheld just as a play style is super popular. I, you know, you when I was in uh, Tokyo a year and a half ago, you, everyone is is far more comfortable busting out a, a PSP or 3DS or Vita just in public. They didn't have a Vita back then, obviously, but like in, in the in the subways and um, so. Those games are coming out in Japan, and we, a lot of people ask us about our direction as a publisher, and they think that, oh, Atlas is going all Western RPG, and Atlas is abandoning Japanese RPGs. It's not really the case, uh, although it keeps coming up. It's just a matter of what games are available for us to bring out that that fall into that that tradition of ours. And Gunnir, Growlancer fall into that 100%. Yes, the PSP is not the same system in terms of maybe trajectory today as it was two years ago, but 
we believe in uh, the user base, the install base. We believe in there being this fan base that's, that's still excited for this kind of game. And um, so we're, we're still confident to put it out. It's 2012, and obviously there aren't another 10 years of legs under the PSP, but um, we have this really cool way in which we can deliver the game on UMD, and we are planning a, a simultaneous launch on PlayStation Network when the game releases in uh, in June. And so we can cater to PSP Go users, we can cater to PlayStation Vita users, and it's our intention to do everything possible to make sure the game is compatible at launch on Vita as well. So um, you know, we, we look at it as a really big audience. Okay. Now, um, here, here's the hardball question that you're not going to like. Sting had released a couple of games in Japan for the PSP, Blaze Union and Gloria Union. It, is, you know, it seems like Atlas has published just about every other Sting game in North America. Is there a reason why these were passed over? Um, there is no one reason for those titles or for any title that I can ever cite. Um, there are a, a number of factors, though, that, play, that come into play um, in... in most recently, a lot of the times it's been an issue of um, looking at specific titles and just thinking about, based on what the game is, how, um, how, how feasible or how, how likely the, the game's path to profitability would be. Because at the end of the day, you know, we, we still want to be able to continue our business and keep the, keep the lights on. And um, I'm not necessarily saying that any one game is, is less likely to be profitable here. But uh, you know, we, I, I think in some specific cases, it was maybe decided that um, the projects would have a, a tougher path to come here. And there are other factors as well. A lot of times, the, game, the amount of voice acting that's in the game, for example, we got Growlancer Wayfarer of Time that comes out in July. And um, you know, we, we look at that game as a project that it's been, Growlancer 4 was expected or, or desired by fans in North America for a very long time. Two and three came out, five came out, and fans were asking, you know, four is considered one of the best in the series. And so we're, we're going to release it, and we were very upfront about the fact that apart from the anime cutscenes, um, we wouldn't be able to voice the game. That was one of those difficult decisions that we had to make because we wanted to bring the game out, um, and, and yet we knew that it would be far more expensive and difficult for us to go ahead and do the full, full localization. Uh, it's not that we didn't want to. It's not that we were looking to cut a corner. Um, it was just a matter of, is it better at the end of the day for us to be able to deliver this game in English in, you know, with this one concession uh, for our fans or for it to never come to the States? And sometimes we're able to make a decision like that. And then sometimes we just decide it's, it's not going to work. Yeah, you know, it, it blows my mind sometimes. We I forget what it was. Oh, Exceed announced um, uh, Way of the Samurai 4 being a digital-only title. Mm -hmm. And we we had people on our message boards on our Facebook saying, well, I'm not going to buy this game because it's digital-only. And I don't get it, because I'd rather have more games in English, no matter the format, than no games in English. Um, there's two things on that. I, I, I think I, I would imagine that people with that sentiment, it's less about the fact that um, they it's less about viewing net digital as a negative from the standpoint of um, I, I think I think a lot of our fans, too, they really want to own games and they, they like the, 
being able to hold the game in their hands. I don't think that's a reflection on the game at all. In fact, I was up in San Francisco and had a chance to run into the Exceed folks, and I saw Way of the Samurai 4 in person, and it, it actually is a fantastically entertaining game. Um, you you lose a little bit of visibility when you're just downloadable, and, I mean, obviously it's really nice to have a product on a shelf. But, yeah, I, I, I'm definitely with you. There's such a... Uh, an opportunity. I think it's very analogous to something like Kickstarter. Like there, the game wouldn't come out if, if, if it was, you know, the, the phys- a physical package has a lot of costs and, and overhead and things involved that make it far less feasible. Um, and it's, it's kind of like uh, if, if, if you can find a way to bring it over, wouldn't you rather have it in some form than not at all? And, and like you said, it's, it's, but, but I can understand when people have those, that reaction. I think it's a gut reaction. I think people just that maybe they don't want to be tied to a, 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 dis, a, dis, a you know, storefront, an online storefront. They want to physically hold the game. I like smell manuals. You know that, John. I'm, <laughs> I'm a notorious manual smeller. Yeah. Well, I, and you know, what? I I think that oftentimes, you know, people's bark is worse than their bite. You know, we we've seen the the massive uproar about you know Diablo three, which even though it's not the reason Rob's not here, I'm gonna say that it is. Um, and you know, Blizzard comes out that it sold 6.7 million copies or whatever it was in its first week. So I think that, that, you know, sometimes we get people that are angry, but you know, at at the end of the day, they decide that they want the game. I've read a lot of articles recently about the merits of pre-orders and what are they for? What are reserving get copies of games for? And for anyone who has that kind of that, that, that feeling or that sentiment, um, the one reality for small publishers, for niche publishers like us, uh, is that those pre-orders are invaluable metrics and analytics for um, our retail partners to figure out whether a game uh, should be brought in 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 any sort of reasonable quantity. And when that isn't there, it's very difficult for them and then in turn for us to justify physically producing the game. Because again, physically producing the game, there are limits to how many quantities have to be made. And um, obviously you have all these shipping costs, there's the dry goods, the manual and things like that. So while I, I don't think any publisher wants to just, you know, if, if we could, if everyone could make a physical product in addition to having a downloadable version, I think everyone would because that's one more way to reach a customer that might not otherwise get the game. The reality is there sometimes there just isn't enough. It, it ends up being too big of a leap of faith. And, um, we we are endlessly optimistic and hopeful and you know i mean there's like cans of unicorn meat in the office you know we we are believers you know we but there's some leaps of faith that are just too big for us to make because we 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 really do need to plan out a future that involves the the light staying on here at atlas yeah and you know i i would rather have the games come over than to not have them come over. So, you know, it's, it it comes down to, I think a lot of people don't realize that while video games are fun and a lot of people view video games as artwork, which is not an argument I'm going to get into here, you know, at at the end of the day, it's a business. The people that are producing these are producing them so that they can feed their families and keep the lights on. So, you know, we, we can't get everything that we want, but we can support the products and the companies that do the things we like, like Atlas. (laughs) So, well, I, I appreciate both of you taking the time to uh, to talk to me today. And, you know, we're very excited for Gungnir, which is going to be out uh, June 12th. Uh, Gungnir is going to be out June 12th. That's right. And again, we're planning. Um, uh, it will be released at, at this time. The plan is UMD and also uh, PlayStation Network. 
And again, our goal is to make sure that it's compatible for PlayStation Vita users uh, uh, day one. So um, if, if, if you're a Vita owner, remember that that's, that's a high priority for us because we do believe that it, this game and then Grow Lancer Wayfarer of Time, we're going to see more and more uh, digital or downloadable uh, purchases. Yes, which, by the way, if, if you don't own a lot of the Atlas PSP games, uh, not too recently you guys dropped the price on a great deal of them. Oh, John, you're so awesome for mentioning that. Absolutely, we did. And specifically, the, the Sting games, the Depth Heaven games, dropped um, pretty dramatically, 50% in some cases. Uh, and so whether you're a fan of uh, the Sting games, the Depth Heaven games, or if you want to check out our, our Persona series of games on PSP, actually... Persona 1, Persona 2 Innocent Sin, and Persona 3 Portable are all available currently on PlayStation Network, and they all work on the, the Vita, if you happen to be a Vita owner. Yay! So, <laughs> I, I, li- I like those. So, I also like Kenka Bancho, which is, is surprisingly hilarious. Uh, yeah, I know. I saw, maybe it was on Destructoid, some uh, user post had been, or, or they like promoted it, and it was... Um, how why Kenka Bancha was one of the best PSP games or among the best PSP games of all time. And um, that's high praise. That's very high praise. It is an incredibly fun game for sure. Well, excellent. Well, thank you guys again. I appreciate it. And for our listeners, uh, I guess this is the end of the podcast because you've already listened to Rob ramble on about Diablo for, I don't know how long that podcast will be four and a half hours. Who knows? He could talk forever, but thank you. <laughs>